right. Welcome to Cinema Around the Corner. My name is Ben Wager, along with my co-host, Don Gibson. Hey there. And today we're continuing a series that we started in our last episode, where we look at films from directors who are well-known and have quite a successful career. But the films that we're looking at weren't what we would consider some of their A-list films. These were some of their films that they released that perhaps weren't quite uh, as successful uh, due to a variety of reasons or has high profile. And so those are the films that we're looking at currently. And I'm going to start off by talking about a film that I picked. It is going to be similar perhaps to some of our other themes because it is a film that was adapted from a play, which as you all know, those of you who are regular listeners, that this is a series that we spent some time on. But this film is called Biloxi Blues and it was directed by Mike Nichols, who is a, uh, I believe both of us are very big fans of, of his work. And we've looked at many of his films through the history of this podcast, which has been about a year. This is a film that was written uh, and adapted by Neil Simon from one of his plays. It's called the Eugene Trilogy, this, this series of plays. And this is the, the middle play. The, the first play, which was also made into a movie, was called Brighton Beach Memoirs. The one that we're currently going to go over is Biloxi Blues. And then the final one was called Broadway Bound. And all of these uh, were you know, fairly successful on Broadway and were made into films with very varying degrees of success. I think probably Biloxi Blues was, I would say overall was probably of the three films was probably the most successful film. I believe oh, film Broadway Bound was a film. I didn't even know that. Yeah, it was made for, it's like a telemovie, you know. It wasn't, oh, okay. I don't think it was. And then uh, a lot of the original actors that were in the play also cast in the film, although we will talk a little bit about that because there was some controversy in regards to that. So uh, to talk about this film, it was uh, 1988. It was made and released. Uh, the budget was about 20 million. It made about 50 million. It starred uh, Matthew Broderick as Private Jerome, Christopher Walken as Sergeant Toomey, Penelope Ann Miller as Daisy Hannigan and Corey Parker as Private Epstein. And there were several other members of the cast, but these were some of the ones that were more notable names that we that we get from this movie. The film is, is loosely based on um, Neil Simon's own life in the sense that he was drafted and had to go down to the South for his boot camp in Biloxi, Mississippi. And the experience of uh, the, the film essentially starts on the train uh, where the, the recent draftees are, are heading down uh, from the New York area down to Biloxi and their experiences as begin to bond. I feel like the film is very much a, a story of how young men had to bond in preparation for war and how people from uh, different ways of life had to kind of co-mingle. And then also the idea of unifying uh, against an authoritarian figure, which is what um, we see Sergeant Toomey, Christopher Walken's character, as, as the friendly sergeant in the first impressions, calm, soothing, but then he turns out to be a complete maniac, and there are several major scenes of, of just total breakdown behavior from this guy. It, it's, it's a comedy, so it's, you know, it's all laced with very comedic tones. But I mean, there are some very serious uh, themes that the, the movie does cover. And for that time, especially, uh, you know, films of World War, uh, about World War II, they, they talked about themes that we don't necessarily um, hear about in these type of films, uh, homosexuality amongst the troops and how not tolerated, the idea of losing your virginity to a you know prostitute um, in the local town where the base is. 
Uh, and then just, you know, some of these types, side stories about how these young men were preparing for war, but they don't actually cover very much of the actual preparation of the war. They go on some marches. You see there's some comedic sides to the marches. And in general, it's a very lighthearted film, but I, I felt like some of the, the tone of the film actually covered some very serious themes, as I talked about. And, you know, you get a, a balanced view of possibly what these young men off, really went through during these boot camp experiences. I mean, one of the things that is um, very common when you talk to veterans is what was the worst experience about being a soldier? And oftentimes, regardless if they went to war or not, boot camp was often the answer, even though they had been in combat. Boot camp was worse than combat, which, you know, some, uh, you know, as you talk to drill instructors, that's the answer they want to hear is they want to hear that this was worse than the combat because then they feel like they did their job. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that this film conveyed that feeling uh, really well of unifying a group of people that have no clue of what they're getting into. And the fact that we're getting it from the, you know, writer's perspective, which is the character played by Broderick, who's, you know, the autobiographical character for Neil Simon. A lot of good little witty quips that he, he gives and all sorts of, and of course it gets him, he's considered a bit of a smart ass by Christopher Walken and gets him and, the, and his uh, troop in trouble. And every time he makes mistake, you know, the rest of the troop has to do uh, 100 push-ups or 200 push-ups, whatever it worked out to. And yeah, I think your writer actually really, conveyed a, a pretty good feeling of how uh how much i would have hated boot camp i was like this would be a horrible place for me to do it be and obviously we relate very well to eugene so i totally related to him i was actually surprised at how good a film it was i'd never seen it i always thought it was pretty light fare um it looked like there wasn't much to it so i know i just never bothered going to it and um i was impressed as you said it touches on a few topics you know homosexuality i guess is probably the most surprising and i don't think it really digs into it but there it does touch on it and we there's realizations and and the idea of in the 40s how this issue was dealt and uh, understood and and how various characters would react because of course we have these pretty hardcore army guys that you know look completely homophobic and yet they realize, hey, maybe this guy who's a really nice guy turns out, oh, he might be gay. It, it, we can certainly see them questioning um, their attitudes, um, having this experience, you know, having to go through the experience and and realize they also have to support these guys in, in their troop. Yeah, you know, and I think that's been something that we, you know, as we uh, talk about the themes of, of life, you know, the military has had, had to adapt to that, you know, that don't ask, don't tell, and, and you know, the concerns about the camaraderie of, of men going to battle. So that, you know, it's definitely a theme that has evolved as we have seen, you know, it, it's very much linked to our society and how we look at these things. You know, one of the other uh, subplots of the film was uh, Private Epstein, played by Corey Parker, who is uh, become friends with Jerome. They're both Jewish men from New York City, basically. And so they have a lot of commonalities. But Private Epstein tends to be uh, more cerebral, while, you know, Jerome is, is one of the, can be one of the guys, a little throws out the one-liners, is a little bit more funny, but Epstein tends to be a little more serious. Uh, and, and defiant. And defiant. He tends to be you know, very stubborn in how he thinks about things and his his moral and ethical positions are are inflexible. Uh, and we see that being tested in the film. And it's very interesting because, you know, uh, Jerome is already beginning to write. And so he, he journals very much. And part of the film is that uh, some of the other boys get his journal 
and they read it out. And it turns out that, you know, even Jerome suspects that Epstein might have homosexual tendencies, which he doesn't think is bad, but it's it's in there. And so that connects to the plot of the homosexual. Uh, and is, is Epstein the homosexual? And, you know, and, and that kind of wraps around the plot and how their relationship is. And I think that part of the film was done very well and how they explored those themes. And I will say that, you know, Mike Nichols is just a tight director. I mean, it's just, he's very, very lean and concise in how he shoots his projects. And, and it's, there's not a lot of distractions. And as we look at a comparison of, say, this director to the director that we're going to look at in the next film, man, are they very different in how they approach these things. I find that uh, I like Mike Nichols' direction because, you know, he, he put together a great little film here. It's not, you know, like you said, it, it was not well aged in the sense that, you know, people are going back to it these days, but we select it and we've looked at it and, and it is a film that uh still can be impactful today and i and that's something i experienced and that's a lot of that has to do with the quality of the direction that mike nichols but that said ben you know i think it's actually i i would recommend people to go look at it because it actually i mean in many ways the film could simply be black and white i mean it's not really a 40s 50s film but it definitely conveys the feeling of what it was like then i mean obviously from a, the lens a little bit from the 80s i guess but um, I found it, uh, I, I was engaged. I, I yeah. didn't find, as you say, that the scenes are quite tight and the story moves along, you know, like that scene you talked about when they're reading his journal, it was fascinating the way he talks about, you know, the other guy potentially being gay. He, he wasn't, he just, he said, I, I don't know why this bothers me and I wish I, it didn't. He doesn't say anything really judgmental, but it's just sort of how somebody that had never dealt with, you know, homosexuals and, and a social you know, uh, situation and how it was such a different perception then that it was now, how people would just think about it. And I thought it was interesting how it conveyed the feeling of what it would be like in those days. You know, if you're just trying to figure out, you know, and, and he says, you know, he really likes him, how he conveyed it is he really likes him. But if it came down to it, he wouldn't want, he wouldn't want to depend on him, which is, yeah. I was like, that is a fast. What does that mean? <laughs> well, they're going to war, right? So <laughs> no, I know, and I don't understand. But like, okay, so apparently a, guy, a gay guy won't back you up in war. I mean, there's just sort of this interesting, you know, double meaning. There's an edge to that statement. But I mean, he's obviously just questioning himself as well. So that wasn't just necessarily focused on the homosexuality aspect of, of Epstein's personality. I think not necessarily going to be the guy that you know steps up is is his suspicion uh and his his manly fortitude beside being possibly gay i think is is in question in regards to you know being able to step up at that in that sense you know the idea of these private thoughts that were shared in the journal and then being taken out of his locker and and, and looked at was a huge betrayal to him and it, it created a huge amount of tension uh that had to be repaired it did get repaired i felt but in the uh, in the end, you know, you got the sense that these are probably the actual journal entries that Neil Simon wrote in his own journals and shared through, you know, because this is a very audio, autobiography, autobiographical experience in regards to Neil Simon's own life. And so, you know, some of it seems really authentic and very, like, probably came exactly from the way that he experienced it. And he shared that as, as such a good writer that he is, he was able to share that very well. One thing I want to explore is, and it's hard not to explore, is the character of Christopher Walken, uh, Sergeant Toomey. Christopher Walken is just 
no matter what role he takes, it's just it's such a distinctive and, and impactful actor. And the way that he took this role, because in the play, the sergeant, the drill instructor, Sergeant Toomey, is w- much more of the uh, traditional uh, sergeant that would you would expect to be leading men in a camp, in a boot camp. And, he, and the energy is always like in your face, kind of more of like you see in some of these other films that have been portrayed more traditional roles of a drill sergeant. Walken made the choice based off the military consultant on the set who had met, who was a a drill sergeant, he had a very calming energy in the way that he conducted himself, and yet he could have a very authoritarian voice when he needed it. And so Walken made the choice to kind of follow this consultant's kind of energy in putting it in the role of the film. And I thought it was a very interesting choice because it really did change the stereotype of what you think of as that role. And the way that Walken can have that cadence and his way of his voice, it just really, I thought it strengthened the depth of the character because the way he yo-yoed between his scenes in regards to which which Sergeant Toomey are you going to see in these different uh, scenes, I thought it was very unpredictable and very entertaining. And Walken, I don't know if he got nominated, but man, I thought he was phenomenal in this role. Yeah, you know, I really enjoyed him too. And one of the things I really enjoyed about him is that he wasn't playing, you know, the sort of overdone character that he's been, I guess, guided to play in the last 15, 20 years of his career because you know, this, the over-the-top intense guy that does, you know, the I put my pants, you know, I put my pants on one leg at a time, all these great Saturday Night Live skits he's done. But it's a caricature of who, what we think of Christopher Walken. And this isn't. Like, he's not doing the crazy over-the-top stuff that he's been doing, as I said, recently. Um, there's, as you said, there's a character that he seems like totally reasonable and he talks in a normal way and then suddenly he blows up. The final scene, I won't go on about it too much, but he has a great, intense scene but between him and the Matthew Broderick character and it's very well played because it's so understated and we don't really know what might happen next we kind of have an expectation because it's not not watching Deer Hunter here or watching Biloxi Blues so or we're not watching um, Full Metal Jacket so that we've seen this many times this intense uh, showdown between you know the the privates and the sergeants and you we never know the edge and, and as you say it's the worst six weeks you're ever going to experience in the military and and this edge ha- brings this movie and the movie is really very a light comedy. We see him losing his virginity um, and there's some, there's a slight edge to it and he kind of addresses it, but it's all very light. It's, it, there's lots of jokes between him and the prostitute and um, it, that stuff's kind of a little bit, I mean, I, I think it's actually well done, but you're not really brought into it and, and feeling, you know, some sort of intense moment happening. It's much more of a light comic feel but this final scene i would say there's that comic feel it comes back but there's a there's a period of time i think because of the Toomey character that it raises the stakes a little bit no absolutely you know he's definitely the heavy and you know jerome is trying to make it light and in his way of dealing with matthew broderick's character private jerome uh he's just trying to deal with it in in the way that he deals with everything and it's more of a light one-line humor thing and it's not working and, and, and the stress in the scene is uh, very palatable. Climax of that scene is it really reflected the direction the film was taking during the storyline that played out. And, you know, I thought it, it was a, a good ending. I, it, I thought, uh, you know, it's just a well-balanced, tight little film. And I'm glad I picked it because I hadn't seen it in a while and I enjoyed it. I concur. I was, And I'm also curious by the, your selection of this film too, because I was thinking of doing Mike Nichols, which I won't do. And the film I was going to do was going to be Postcards from the Edge, which is basically an autobiography of Carrie Fisher and her mom, Meryl Streep and Shirley MacLaine, and that he made this film uh, a year later, uh, Postcards. And that film has got way more 
edgy. It's a lot more of a dynamic film. And I was thinking really Biloxi Blues. And I'm, I, as you said, it's kind of like a, a neat little gem that you, you wouldn't, it's definitely not in the top five uh, Mike Nichols films, but it, as you say, it's the tightness of him, the comic delivery. And, you know, Nichols himself was a director of Neil Simon plays. He directed Odd Couple and another one on Broadway. So he had a really interesting relationship with Neil Simon, understood him really well. And I think you're right. This is him essentially putting Neil Simon on, on film and doing a fairly good job with it. And Neil Simon did write the screenplay. It's one of the few films that uh, it's the only film that uh, Nick, Mike Nichols did with Neil Simon, where he wrote the, the screenplay. Uh, also another interesting point is the character that played uh, private Epstein, the, the suspected Jewish gay kid. He was played by Corey Parker, uh, who was not in the original cast of, of the play. The original cast member, his name was uh, Barry Miller. And he uh, was not chosen to play the the role of Epstein. And Siskel and Ebert, who this is in the late 80s, or, you know, they're, they're beginning to become like the you know reviewers of, you know, with their at the movies and their- Which is, which is where we're going, Ben. That's that's yeah, our next. We're, we're just right behind them. I mean, we're just, yeah, you know, we're just any soon. Now, we're gonna. It, this is gonna blow up. Uh, but we are not really critic. We analyze. We don't necessarily critique as much. That's, that's not the. That's not the theme of, of what this podcast is about. Oh, I keep but getting getting, I get getting back to the story. Uh, so Barry Miller was not selected, and Cisco uh, especially was just ripped and said that the the choice not to put Barry Miller into this role and uh, Ebert Roger Ebert also agreed very strongly. And they Universal they threatened Cisco and Ebert of never giving them any more pre screeners. Of their films if they didn't retract the statement about the choice of Barry Miller. They tried to strong arm Siskel and Ebert into toning down their their dislike of this film because of that character choice. And Siskel, a televised segment, he didn't hold back. And Roger Ebert in the press column that he does in Chicago, he also didn't hold back. They didn't uh, break from the threats of Universal. And I'm sure Universal probably never followed through on the threat. But an interesting decision because, you know, Mike Nichols made a choice. And I thought the, the Corey Parker, the character, uh, the actor who played Epstein, I thought he did a good job. I mean, I don't, I didn't see the Broadway play, so I don't know how strong Barry Miller was as the character Epstein. But, you know, I mean, the energy that Nichols wants in the film, he gets to choose his cast. Yeah, and it's also interesting that whole power of of what Siskel and Ebert had um and this historically there's been a real interest interesting uh, dynamic between reviewers and their association and their power over Hollywood and vice versa so you know honestly the, the reviewer can say whatever they want generally the idea is we'll give this thing to you and give us some thumbs up that something will happen it's all very political and everything, and it's good to hear every once in a while there's a bit of a showdown. Yeah, yeah. And I think now the, the history of movie critics has been so diluted by the accessibility of, of yeah. anybody sharing anything they want on Rotten Tomatoes and on the internet that era has, has passed. We're not going to have that kind of kind of power filtered through a couple of reviewers. It just doesn't seem to be the yeah. path that we're heading toward. So I think that yeah. is history as it should be. There's still people in the, in the you know, the times and, and Roger Ebert, you know, even though he died 10 plus years ago, he's got a whole website that is still, you know, up and running. And so he's they still, a brand. he's a brand, it's a brand. And, and it, you know, they, people read them. A lot of people read them. And, you know, my students, I, when they're looking for analysis, I guide them towards the times and the post and Roger Ebert and there's some relevant criticism. But as you said, the power of the two thumbs up is no longer, you know, front and center when they when they do the reviews. Yeah. 
Yeah. All right. Well, I think we touched on this pretty well. Why don't we move to your film, Don? All right. Well, um, to find similarities between this film and the film I selected is a bit of a challenge. Uh, one thing you could say, so this is a film called Silence uh, from Martin Scorsese from about four or five years ago, 2016. So the Loxy Blues is part of a official trilogy by Neil Simon, as Ben mentioned. And Silence is actually a part of an unofficial trilogy that people refer to as Scorsese's Faith Trilogy. So he did a film in 88, The Last Temptation of Christ, which I guess the title speaks for itself. Wonderful film. And then 10 years later, he did a film called Kundun, which is the a biography of the Dalai Lama when he was a boy and a young man. And that was uh, 98. And then he did this film called Silence. So it's interesting. These are all, so the, the first film is about Christianity. The second one is about Buddhism. And this film is essentially the conflict between the two religions. It's a story of the Portuguese Jesuit priests on uh, missions to save Christians or, you know, continue the missions in, in for Christianity in 17th century Japan, based on a novel by uh, Shusaku Endu. It is based on fact, but it's been fictionalized. Cast is very interesting. It stars Adam Driver, Andrew Garfield, and Liam Neeson, and many other uh, characters as well, but those are our primary uh, roles. It is a beautiful film. Uh, I, I agree with Ben. There's so many differences between this film and Biloxi Blues. This is not a tight film. There's two and two and a half hours long, very long poetic shots. It's all about, you know, conveying a dreamlike landscape. And there's all this fog and steam and darkness. And uh, whereas, of course, Biloxi Blues is all about kind of moving the story forward and having setups with funny dialogue. Uh, this is uh, very clearly not uh, that genre. Uh, so the story centers around the, uh, basically Japan is, is driven out the Jesuits and Christianity from their country. And they've done it by torturing and killing Japanese converts. And they've done it, you know, en masse. But then they've realized that the more they kill people and torture them, the more they martyr them. And of course, that seems to attract more people to come. So the big thing that they have to do here to reject Christianity is apostatize. And apostatize means you've rejected your faith. And to do that, what you do is you, you step on what's called a fumi, fumie, which is an image of Christ. You step on it, which shows that you've, you know, you renounce your religion and, and you reject, you know, the tenets of Christianity and you're coming back to the, the faith in, in Japan. Yeah, I did feel that uh, this film could have uh, improved significantly with a little tighter editing. Um, I no. thought, uh, you know... Some of the, uh, it just, there were some excruciatingly long shots and there were some things that possibly they could have trimmed down in regards to what they were trying to impact the viewer with. What I, I did like, you know, as a history teacher and a history, you know, somewhat of a historian, I do, I do know a little bit about this timeline and I enjoyed aspects of the film in, in the sense of the messaging of, because, you know, at the time, Christianity is spreading across the planet as the the des, you know, manifest destiny of the European white order throughout the world is, is trying to spread itself. And Christianity is part of the, the tool the, to govern and control. And sometimes it's sent in a little early. So in the sense of, you know, Japan, the missionaries actually arrived there before even the idea of trying to, to have a, a colonial territory, which Japan never really actually went through a, a process where it was colonized. I believe maybe that the Mongolians might've had a little bit of time there, but not very much. And then of course, 
when they were defeated in World War II, but otherwise they've essentially been their own sovereign nation state for much of their history. And so to see uh, that Christianity was not able to, uh, you know, keep its control of of that nation, you know, uh, when you think about rooting for the underdog in history, you know, generally the religion is the advantaged situation of the European-based religions tend to win all of the battles uh, as they're backed by the European powers. And so to see that, uh, you know, if you compared it to a bullfight, you know, the matador is the Christian religion and the bull is is the Japanese. And once in a while, the bull wins and it knocks out the matador. And this felt like one of those moments as I watched this film, I was like, ah, the Christians kind of got knocked out in this one and they, they weren't able to do what they had been normally doing throughout their spreading of the religion as the colonialization of European power expanded at this time. We're not seeing that being successful in this particular story, which that part I enjoyed because I do like to root for the underdog. Uh, unfortunately, the the violent nature of the film and, and how you know brutally Christianity was suppressed was very in your face. I mean, they took it all the way through the processes of whatever they did. There, w- there was no implication, oh, this is this person's dying off camera somewhere. This person died on camera and the person next to him died on camera. And then, you know, and so there was just a real like in your face uh, experience of this is how the Japanese dealt with Christianity. And there were times where that you could set the tone of the film, but I, it just kept coming over and over again. <laughs> and I just thought, well, this this is a little bit much. And so that, that part of it, I felt it just distracted from what I thought was, it could have been a a better film without going that far in those directions. It's interesting you say that because, um, you know, this is a Scorsese film and I've I've mentioned he has done a couple other films similar to this, but, you know, Kundun and and Last Temptation had minimal violence in it. I mean, nothing really in Kundun and a little bit in Last Temptation. And this film is filled with really violent, upsetting act. People are put on crucifixes with the tide coming in. And the tide comes in, you know, high tide is just over their heads. And we find out, you know, one of the characters, one of the characters being drowned in this fashion lasted four days like this. And, you know, we're left to think about that. And there's these scenes of people being hung upside down with a little incision made in their neck and they just slowly bleed to death and they're hanging in this sack in a pit and it's, it's just miserable. Scorsese is known for violence. I mean, you know, from Mean Street's taxi driver you know, Goodfellas all the way up to Casino or wherever. Uh, he's made The Departed. He's made out of films with an awful lot of graphic violence in it. And there's actually one scene here where a guy gets beheaded. And I have to say, I was, my opinion with that guy was like, lucky guy. I mean, he didn't have to drown for four days and he wasn't hung upside down a pit. He just had his head cut off. And that was, that, that was lasted very quickly. And I was, I was, I was fascinated by the use of violence in this because it wasn't the, the fat, the flashy kind of gangster intense showdown stuff. It was, as you said, a political weapon It's like, you know, we're not going to kill you Jesuit priests. We're going to kill all the people really slowly serve you. And we're, and they're going to die slowly. They've already apostatized, but unless you do it, we're going to kill all these other people. And, you know, it's not intense and, and, you know, people yelling and screaming and big battles. It's just this really slow bureaucratic decision of how to win this, war of of faith and uh that coupled with the long conversations about you know the person that that was in charge of all this i forget what his title was inquisitor he was the inquisitor Inquisitor, yes he was the inquisitor and he just he just kept explaining to them how you're never going to win and that methodical nature i realize this is not a fast-paced film but i 
I really think it's one of Martin Scorsese's best films. And it wasn't really recognized. It had the photography is absolutely gorgeous. I do think the editing is beautifully done. I mean, it's obviously not tight. Uh, Driver and, and Garfield were completely committed to the project. These guys are like bone thing. They both lost like 40 pounds yeah. for the projects. And, and they really showed a commitment to it. I would say that Garfield's, I really struggle with him as a Jesuit priest because he's way too good looking, a nice guy. I wish Adam Driver was the main guy because he looked much more the role and much. We just kept talking about how Garfield was just like, he just looks too nice to be in this, yeah, in this situation. Too movie starry to play. He's too like, movie uh, starry. Yeah. 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 No, I, I, it, it, I also had struggles with the believability of his role just because, you know, he just has too much of a contemporary vibe to him. He just, and it just didn't. He's Spider-Man. Yeah, well, whatever, Spider-Man or just, you know, famous movie star dude who yeah. just doesn't have the ability to to shed that and, and become this other person in the role. And I just never, I just couldn't get, it just it just felt like it was a miscast choice, in my opinion, to have him. Yeah. And Adam I guess- Driver has that goofy old age, you know, old old school look that, you know, he's also, I, to, to be honest with you, he's also a much stronger actor, in my opinion. But- I agree. Uh, Andrew Garfield wasn't, I think he was totally committed to the project. And I think he really did what he could, but I think he's just, uh, he's not that high level a- actor and, and driver. You're immediately, you're believing what he's doing. He's, he's, he really throws himself into the role. I got to say Liam Neeson, who he's not, not really an A-list actor. He's great for uh, action films. I mean, Taken, oh, what a great actor. But uh, he's great in this. He, he, he really, because it's so fascinating because this whole thing is about we're going to win. And he was this basically the mission of Andrew Garfield and Andrew, Adam Driver was to come and find this this lost priest that was who inspired them and who apparently had just converted a bit, but it was been given up. And so they go in and they find him. It turns out it's true. And Adam and one of them gets killed. And the other one converts. And in the end, they're just sitting there doing as they're told. And they're bur- they're buried in the Buddhist manner, although there's implication that they've kept their faith. Um, but you know, uh, Liam Neeson's such a great guy because he's the guy that's going to go in there and win. And the first time we see him, we find out now he's 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 a Buddhist now. He gave up that. He's moved on. So I really I, I think it's a beautiful, compelling film. And I, photography is so lovely and so um, transfixing, and it puts you in this mindset of you know, and an, an otherworldly kind of place. So I realize it's long, but it's not. Uh, I think it's all valid. I thought, you know, there were parts of the film I enjoyed and there were parts of the film that I was just like, you know, I'm going to take a little break, go do some <laughs> things, come back and, you know. And, while it's um, still running? Uh, no, no, I stopped the film. I stopped. Oh. <laughs> you know, one of the things I, I thought I didn't really care for is I just didn't feel like the Japanese were portrayed historically. It just felt like they were, it was the interpretation of what those Japanese people would be like but now, and I just didn't get uh, the sense of, you know, the, the characterizations that the choices that they had made for those actors, it just didn't feel uh, like it connected with kind of that old feudal Japan kind of vibe. And maybe that was a choice that they made to kind of, you know, make it more of a connected to our society today or something. But it just, it, I, I just felt like it was definitely a westernized lens of what they thought those Japanese feudal guys were like back then, you know? And yeah. so that, to me also was an area where I was like, is this really how this guy would have talked back then and acted? You know, I don't, I questioned it a little bit. Their, their devoutness was just, I kept wondering why, <laughs> what is so great about Christianity? I don't get why they buy into it so much. What are, they're getting absolutely nothing out of it. Well, you know, I mean, I think that that's maybe, you know, a weakness that you have, you know, you don't have any true faith. 
Don. I have faith, but it's in, it's in sports. Well, generally. I'm saying true, true faith. In, in, that is true you know. faith. Anyway, sports is fleeting. Sports is fleeting. Is it? It is. It is. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, well, anyway, these people, they live miserable lives and then they get tortured if they found other Christians. And then, you know, as you said, even if, you know, if, if the Christians were going to show up and, 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 and take over and start monetizing on this investment, they, they were nowhere to be seen. It was a pretty miserable existence to live uh, for well, all. Remember, people. the big sell for Christianity is your crappy, miserable life now. I know. Follow all these rules and guidelines. When you die, you're going to be rewarded. And, and they kept saying that. Yeah, that's the big sell. You know, when you are a crappy, miserable peasant, you know, Christianity, you know, and they even approached that in this in the story, you know, and it, no, they definitely it, did. Right. It resets uh, Garfield's character a little bit, I think, uh, when they're like, well, when we die, it's going to be better. Right. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> He kind of yeah. resets because he had a little panic attack and, and that reset him a little bit. So, and yeah. the other thing I, I thought was interesting is how Martin Scorsese just took this theme and went all the way with it. Cause he, this thing premiered in Vatican city, you know, that was where the premiere of the film was, was in Vatican. So, I mean, like, and he had 400 Jesuits uh, actually preview the film before uh, it was shown. So, I mean, he really, this, it almost sounded like a propaganda vehicle for the Catholic Church, the way that he approached this thing. And, and I don't know Scorsese's background to know whether he's like a devout Catholic now or whatever. I mean, I know that he's had a, he has sinned in his past. That is He has, but who hasn't? But no. I mean, maybe he is devoutly back to the church. I have no idea. But the yeah. reading about how this, the final post-production and the previews and the premiere in the Vatican City, yeah. it, just mean, it just sounded like a propaganda view. Well, yeah, I got to say, like, I really admire Scorsese's personal vision in, in many of his films. But so this film, as you said, I mean, this film cost like $45 million. I barely made half of it back. And it lasted, I don't, it, whoever was, whoever was distributing it did not get fully behind it because it. I never even noticed it until after it was gone. His previous Last Temptation of Christ was based on a, a controversial uh, book by a Greek author, I forget his name, and the Christian church was totally against it, and it was all controversial. Kundun was, is based on the young life of the Dalai Lama, and there was a huge showdown between Walt Disney and, and the Chinese government over the making. They Walt Disney produced the Kundun film, and they actually, like Walt Disney and China, didn't talk to each other, relate to each other for many years. And they finally settled their interests because obviously money is really the thing that everyone seems to believe in. But all these three projects are all Scorsese, just like, as you said, going full. I'm going to go, I'm going to produce this thing. I'm going to do it exactly the way I believe in it. And I, don't, I, I totally admire Scorsese's work because he's always personally completely invest in his projects. And that shows very much in, in this piece as well. well you know, look, Scorsese at this point in his career, he gets to do whatever he wants for the most part, because he's Scorsese. And so, you know, this film, you know, lost money. They, he probably had a multi-film deal and they got the money back in some other film. Totally did. Irishman came out later and that made a lot of money. Yeah, well, that was too. I mean, this was, I don't know if this was his last, I don't know what his, the last film he did that, that wasn't for streaming. Because I know The Irishman was the Netflix. It was, yeah. And I don't I know what, I don't know what was before that, that would have been, you know, cause this was 2016. So between. Yeah. The- so there's something else in there for sure. I don't remember yeah, what it was. Oh, he's been involved. I know he did the project. Well, that was a producing thing. He produced a documentary about the dead, but he's, and maybe a stones thing too. He's, you know, he's a guy that's doing stuff all the time. So yeah, he's not going anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. 
All right. Well, I think we covered these pretty well. As we move forward, we're going to continue this this theme of uh, looking at damn right the less, the less successful films of certain uh, well-known directors. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Cinema Around the Corner, and we look forward to uh, bringing you some more excellent looks at films that you might not regularly uh, be viewing. So have a great day, and we'll see you again soon. See you later. Thank you.